0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, I'm Jared Smith with our esteemed panel: Frank Strait, Evan Fisher, and Zach Moss. Uh, tonight we have Dr. Athena Masson. Uh, she is the weather goddess, but also has a really cool hurricane scale that we're going to learn about and really just to get to know her a little bit too, and and and, and just talk some weather shop uh, like we always do. And and as usual, if you have questions or comments for us, uh, please leave them in. It in the chat. However, you however you listen to us, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, Anchor, Spotify, we love it. Thank you for listening to us tonight. So anyway, what we're going to do is, uh, you know, we uh, first time guest, Dr. Masson, welcome um, to the program. And what we like to do with our first time with our first timers. Is, uh, you know, let's find out what got you started on this. How did you catch the weather bug?
1: That's a long, difficult, complicated story. I could sum it up and say I was dropped on my head when I was little, but it all started in the wee, wee times of my life. I was two years old and I went through Hurricane Andrew. And at the time, I was living very close to Homestead, just a little outside of the city limits. And my mother was a, an airline captain for American Airlines at the time. And on her way home, she was flying home. And on the outs, on the outside of her aircraft, she would tell the passengers, hey, everyone, look outside, that that's Hurricane Andrew. But don't worry, the weather office has said that it's going to be tracking northward. It's not going to be moving into Florida. So that was kind of the ominous mistake, number one. So the Hurricane Center was expecting Andrew to move northward at that time. Little did they know that it did shift track and then went straight into South Florida. My mother got home in time, and we managed to pretty much put the car in the garage. We didn't have very little time to secure everything, but we rode out that Category 5 storm. And just being a small child, you would think that I would not remember this, but I remember being underneath the mattress that my mother covered us in and hearing the winds. That is a sound you will never forget if you go through a major category five hurricane. And at one point in the weird hours of the morning, she took me out to see the damage. But all I can remember was complete silence. You could see straight up. We went through that eye wall. We can see straight up and see the stars at night. It's just something that you don't forget. And then about 10 minutes later, the second half of the eye wall came through and just massive destruction. We had a satellite dish from a TV center just down the street from us, roll down our street and then smash into the house at the end. And just the very next morning, waking up, sunrise, no power, you can smell the gasoline. But usually these days we think of Hurricane Katrina for the hurricane damage, floods everywhere. Roads underwater, houses underwater. This was completely different. It looked like tornado damage. Everything was flattened. Across the way, the house that was supposed to be there, gone. And the only thing that was left were the the silverware at the bottom of the swimming pool. So that just changed me from that point on, even as a little girl, of just walking out and seeing complete destruction. Like What force can do that? And at that point, I wanted to study weather. From that tiny little age, I wanted to dedicate my life to hurricanes, but also I didn't want anyone to go through what I went through. It's, it's a beautiful experience from a meteorology standpoint, but it's horrifying. No one should have to go through this and we need a better way to predict and even classify the intensity of hurricanes.
2: I have literal goosebumps from listening to that story. That is unbelievable. Um, there's so few people in the world that have experienced what you experienced. Um, I just, I can't wrap my mind around a house across the street being being blown away, the silverware at the bottom of the pool uh, or a satellite dish rolling down the street. That's one of my favorite weather stories I've heard on here. What do you do nowadays? Where are you at, where are you working? Uh, and how did you get to this spot in your professional career?
1: Right now I'm taking just a little break. I'm an adjunct professor at Flagler College. I am also pursuing a fifth degree. I'm now doing a uh, MBA, Masters of Business Administration. So in a year, hopefully I will be done with this program. I'm kind of looking at more of promoting myself in a separate way, possibly maybe even creating a TV studio meant for students because you don't have a lot of students that get that experience before they go on the air or really have that meteorology experience. I'm thinking maybe putting my efforts into that after my MBA and seeing what I could do in the educational route. Because I do love my students and I do love the education route. And prior to this, I was a broadcast meteorologist not leaving that out. I mean, here I am. I'm doing stuff like this and I enjoy it so much. I enjoyed talking about the weather and especially hurricanes. So I'll continue to do that my whole life, hopefully. But right now it's just focusing on the students and maybe making a better pathway for them and maybe creating some little future hurricane experts.
2: Rock on. That is awesome. Uh, Having two undergrad students here on the panel, uh, we may have different aspirations than broadcast, but I know we know so many broadcast to students. That is just wonderful to hear. Uh, and especially with the world that we, the crazy two years that we've had with the pandemic. So, so few students get the experience now. Um, and moving forward, there's going to be a, a big gap. So I'm super excited to hear you saying that. Thank you. Um, you have developed this scale, the Masson-Goff scale, And for the listeners, uh, if if you're listening and not watching tonight, uh, you can't see, but I've been mouthing that behind the scenes for the last 10 minutes, because I I was really struggling with the pronunciation, but the Massingoff scale, we've been talking about the Saffir-Simpson scale, and this one as well that you have developed. How does this uh, hurricane intensity scale differ from the typical Saffir-Simpson scale?
1: So we need to go a little bit into history on this. The Saffir-Simpson hurricane scale has gone through a couple of revisions, When it was first introduced to the public in the 1970s, saffir simpson hurricane scale, we were taking into consideration three components, the wind speeds of a hurricane, the barometric pressure, and the storm surge associated with it. Combined together, you would get those categories, one through five, that we are all familiar with. However, it did go through a huge change back at around 2009, 2010, when Hurricane Ike and Katrina produced a storm surge that was much larger than that of the category that it was given. So at this point, the National Hurricane Center decided to drop all of the requirements except for the wind in order to produce a more accurate hurricane scale. Okay, so at this point in 2010, we then received the saffir simpson hurricane wind scale. I'm not sure why Simpson is still in there because his components were barometric barometric pressure and storm surge. Now we're kind of just the Sapper scale because he was the one who created the wind component, but we're keeping Simpson in there. At this point, Sapper-Simpson hurricane wind scale, this is what we have been using since around 2010, 2011. However, there's been a lot of hurricanes that tested this and especially Hurricane Sandy in 2012 when it came ashore in New Jersey that was equated to a category one, and it gets a little more complicated. It was completing its extratropical transition when it was coming ashore in the New Jersey area. But still with wind speeds alone, category one, but just if we can recall all of the damage that we saw, the immense flooding that occurred in New York, in New Jersey, all across the New England area, that was equated to a category one At that point, I already established to myself that the Severus Simpson hurricane wind scale was not going to be justifiable in the long run. There needed to be more components. Just having wind is not an accurate measure of a hurricane. So I decided then for my PhD at the University of Toronto, this is what I wanted to tackle. I wanted to create a hurricane scale to better reflect the strength and possibly the accurate intensity of a hurricane when it was coming close to shore. So now we have wind speed, we're not getting rid of that. But we also brought back barometric pressure, storm surge, but also three new components. Moisture content, how much rain is produced within that tropical cyclone. The size of a cyclone, because they're not, they don't come in all one shape and size. There are a variety of sizes ranging from large what we saw with Hurricane Sandy to very little like what we saw with Hurricane Andrew. And then the final component, the forward speed. How fast is that hurricane moving? And as we saw with Hurricane Harvey, it really wasn't Hurricane Harvey when it impacted Rockport, Texas, when it was a category four hurricane. Yes, that was memorable for that small area. What Harvey went down in history for was that it stalled right over the Houston area as a tropical storm and for days just produced an immense amount of rain. And that was all thanks to that forward speed. And this is where the Mass and Goff scale took off. I focused on those six components and re-ranked most of the hurricanes from the 1970s all the way up until I believe it was 2014 or 2015 to see what the true category was when they were impacting and when they reached their peak strength. Who is Goff? Uh, Professor William Goff, he was my PhD supervisor at the University of Toronto. He's the Dean of the Environmental Science Department. He was the one who carried the torch with me through this. I remember in my final defense, he said to the audience and myself that most PhD students they come in and they wanna change just a little thing about science. Well, here comes this five foot two redhead to just stomp through the door and says, you wanna know something? I'm going to change something big. I'm gonna leave a mark on this. So I guess I had guts, but it was something I've always wanted to do. And I'm so grateful for Professor Goff in my life because for a supervisor to let me go and do my own research and something this impressive, this time-consuming, this amazing. Only, cert- only a few amount of supervisors in the world would allow you to do that. And I'm just very grateful for him. And he's a genius when it came to the physics and the math. So thank you. Thank you for that part. So
0: tell us a little bit more about the point scale. You, you, you mentioned earlier that, that each component is um, graded on points. So let's talk about that rubric a little bit and, and how that rolls up into that final category.
1: We're we're again looking at each of the six components. So we have wind, storm surge, barometric pressure, moisture content, size, and forward speed. Now it gets a little complicated because when you have a tropical cyclone that's all the way out towards Africa, all the way out into the Atlantic, there's some things that we really do not know about it. At this point, we're using satellite estimated estimations to see maybe approximately what the wind speeds are. And that's then going back to the Dvorak technique. So we're looking at the shape of these tropical cyclones and determining by their shape, we can kind of pinpoint maybe if it's a category one to a category five and what the wind speeds are. It's a little bit of an estimate. What we don't know at this point, what's the storm surge? Storm surge is a very tricky component. Storm surge not really producing anything all the way out in the ocean. Storm surge is mostly when it comes very close to the shore. So we have to wait on that component. Another is the moisture content. How much rain is really falling out of this cloud? We don't really see a lot of detail, especially out in the ocean. We don't have rain gauges throughout the ocean. And usually we don't really see the the total amount of rain until after the storm has passed. So what the point scale is we had a introductory scale, and then we had a post hoc scale. The introductory scale, we're only looking at four components. We're looking at the winds, we're looking at the barometric pressure, we're looking at the size, and we're looking at the forward speed. All of those we know, all of those we can estimate thanks to satellite technology. So at this point, we, all that we need are those four components to give you an estimate on what the category is. So bringing back those points, ranking it from one to seven on each of those categories. Now, as that hurricane is coming very close to shore, I'm getting a little bit more information. We still have the wind, the pressure, the size and the forward speed, but now we're getting rainfall estimates. So you'll see all the time on weather network, AccuWeather, Weather Channel, you'll see those graphics that come up and say, okay, we're expecting about 12 plus inches of rain. At this point, we're taking those estimates and we're saying, okay, so the maximum amount of rain that we can expect is about 12 inches, let's just say. At this point, we look at our scale. Where does 12 inches fall? Should get like three to four points out of a maximum of seven. So we're gonna say, okay, that's a moderate threat at this point, it's gaining four points for that. Storm surge, very similar. So we're estimating how large that storm surge is going to be when it impacts the shore. So if we have a storm surge, let's say, of one to two feet, not really a great threat. We're probably only going to give it a one on the scale, very minimal. But if we're seeing something 12, 13, 14 plus feet, yes, that's a big concern. We're going to be giving you a pretty big mark, six, maybe even maximum of seven. So we'll have more components as that hurricane impacts shore. However, the post hoc scale will occur after the hurricane is completely passed. And this is what the National Hurricane Center does all the time, is that a year, maybe a few months after the hurricane they send out meteorologists and climatologists down there. They measure where that storm surge was, the peak of that storm surge, how much rain really fell in that area. We would then revisit the storm and update to the category of what it truly was. Most of the time when we did do this across the thesis, The category did not change by much, maybe a little category or two, but it was not a significant difference.
0: I'm curious, you know, on the rainfall side of things, you know, something that we deal with a lot in the Carolinas, especially this time of year, uh, getting into the late fall season, we have a tropical system come up, we often have to deal with predecessor rain events. Uh, you know, for and for those of you who are out there, who is like, what is a predecessor rain event? Basically, the idea is you have a tropical moisture interacting with the frontal system of some such, and and as that storm approaches, that we have lots and lots of rain ahead of it. And so that's a very simplistic way to put it, but that's really the easy. I think that's the easiest way for you know for, for the for the people in the audience who, you know, they, they may not have the meteorology uh, training that you know some of us have. Um, does your scale take into account the potential for PREs or does it, um, is it just solely with the core of the hurricane?
1: The reason I developed the scale this way and why each component is separated is that if someone comes along with another component, it can easily be added to the scale and ranked one through seven. So obviously from minimal all the way to major. We would have to update the total number at the end and then reflect it back on the category one through five scale. But of course, there's going to be other components that need to be included. Heck, if we really wanted to go 20 components, it may seem like a lot, but the more components that we have, the better the science. So this will take into account any other component that can be fit within there. With that on the core, We don't really look too much at the core. The core does contain typically the highest wind speeds, typically the highest storm surge. So that's a little bit of a fault, but with rainfall amounts, that's a little bit different because it really depends on the forward speed of the system. If the system is falling apart, we don't really have a definite core or an eye right over an area. The rain could spread out completely. So it's not just looking at the core. What we saw with Hurricane Ida, for example, and we're looking at this right now, is that yes, Louisiana got hit by the majority of those winds, by the majority of that storm surge. But when Ida came across into the New England area, and especially New York, I can guarantee you right now, the rain was not the problem for Louisiana. No, it was not. The rain was the problem all the way in the New England area. So it will take into consideration that part of it, even though Ida was an extra tropical cyclone at that point. So we are not just focusing on the core of a system. We all know, anyone who's been through a hurricane, it does not take a core to make it a deadly storm. There's so many times that the outer bands will create devastation, especially with tornadoes that are being formed.
2: So have y'all done any social science research on this scale uh, and run it past some members of the public to see what the differences might be and how they might perceive it differently from the Saffir-Simpson scale?
1: A little bit, not too much. We try and keep it on the science side. Uh, I like that. (laughs) When we do get into the social sciences, it gets a little sticky, a little messy. From at least what we have been told, and we've presented this at a few conferences, the American Meteorological Society, um, the Canadian Meteorological Association. And for the most part, the audience is very pleased with what we have. And it mostly comes down to the fact that we did not force anyone to change their views on the category system. It's still category one, two, three, four, and five. That has not changed. And as meteorologists, when we go on the air, when we go on the radio, when we're writing an article, we're not picking out all of the science. We're not telling the audience, well, it's a category three because of this. We're mostly just saying it's a category three storm. And the public already knows what that means. Do I leave? Do I stay? And that's it. With this sort of scale, with the mass hurricane scale, if we were to introduce all those six ponents, all of those numbers, all of the math, that would complicate everything. The public does not need to know that. They just wanna turn on the TV, recognize it's a category three, it's a category four. Okay, we are going. They don't need to sit down and know the science. Well, if they want to, please be my guest. We love to go through the science. Educate yourselves, that would be great, but most of the public, they don't have time for that. They just want a simple solution, a simple answer so that they can decide to get out or not.
2: With regards to that, have you compared this to other cyclone scales besides the uh, Saffir-Simpson? Like one that comes to my mind is the uh, um, cyclone intensity scale that, you know, is used out in the Indian Ocean and the uh, Western Pacific.
1: It's complicated to compare with those scales because every single ocean basin is different. We will notice that in the Western Pacific, where we have the typhoons, those typhoons that impact Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, those areas, they're usually much larger, and even to an extent, to an extent, much more intense than what we see over here in the Atlantic. It would have to be a completely different scale, which I am up for the challenge. I even said to my supervisor, that would be a good challenge to maybe look at every single ocean basin and see if we can create a scale directly for that basin, but also with the Indian Ocean. Indian Ocean does not produce menacing hurricanes, really intense hurricanes. Yes, we'll see some intense hurricanes, especially as they're going towards the Bay of Bengal, and that's just because of the topography. So you'll get the the largest storm surge in that area all across the world because of just the topography of that area. But it doesn't have to be a major hurricane in order for it to be a devastating storm surge event there. That's just based on the topography. So there's little differences that We would not be able to use this scale that's specifically for the North Atlantic over in the Pacific or the Indian. It would have to be a completely different scale because it's only fair for them. If we were to bring our scale over to the Indian Ocean, we'd probably be getting tiny little micro hurricanes that are category right. one on ours, not really a category five when it, they should be saying it's a category five for you guys.
3: I'm curious what you think about uh, what the folks in the private sector are, are doing. And uh, is that something that you're considering in your research too?
1: Yes. And I'm really happy that there are others out there that are trying to create and devise a new hurricane scale, because I came to the table with the Mass and Goff scale. I'm not here to push it upon people. Really, we're a team team of meteorologists at this point. Our main goal is to protect the lives of those who live along the shorelines and those who are impacted by hurricanes. It doesn't have to be my scale, but it's great to know that in the private sector, we even have the ACE, the Accumulated Cyclone Energy Index. That's another one that they are trying to push out. That's maybe a better way to categorize the energy within a tropical cyclone. That's just another scale. That's another piece to the puzzle. It would be nice if all of us would come together in a collaborative method, maybe create one big hurricane scale, take a component or two from each of our scales and maybe find a way for it to work together. Because as I said earlier, the more that we have, the better the outcome. Because again, we got rid of barometric pressure and storm surge for what reason? To try and make a hurricane scale more simple? Now we're only looking at the wind component when every single person who has been through a hurricane over these last 10 years now knows, they are experts in a, in themselves right now. It is not the wind. It is not the wind that we should be worried about. If anything, it should be the water. It should be the storm surge. Because from a report from Rappaport at the National Hurricane Center, 49% of US deaths are caused by storm surge. And only about 9% is caused by the wind. We know that the wind scale is not working. It's not the right method. So even in the private sector, if someone else is creating a scale, please like listen to them. Let us all come together and just to acknowledge that we know something's wrong that needs to be fixed. So we're just doing a little tiny step, one at a time every single day, that maybe enough steps, something will change.
3: So uh, you live in the St. Augustine area now, right? Yes. Okay, so if you go to visit St. Augustine, what's something that you have to do when you visit?
1: Also, you have to visit the alligator farm. We have hundreds of alligators from all across the world, but especially just outside of our backyards. If you do find an alligator in the St. Augustine area or even the surrounding area, the alligator farm will come capture the alligator and put it into their giant pit of alligators that you can go and feed whatever that you want. And you can see giant snapping claws at it. So that's the tourist destination, but I do have to say we have great breweries here. Hmm. So please come down to the St. Augustine downtown area, great breweries and even some wineries we also, we also do make datal pepper sauce. Dado peppers are unique to St. Augustine because of the climate, the temperature, and the soil. It's a pepper that's usually only found in this area. And we have lots of hot sauces around here. So if you are a hot sauce fan, pick up your bottle for yourselves. <laughs>
3: Same question for the Toronto area since you spent several years there. What's uh, something a tourist has to do when they come to visit Toronto?
1: Bring a jacket. (laughs) (laughs) If you want culture, if you want the arts, you want the theater, you want the science museums, anything that you possibly want, Toronto has it. But just about an hour north of Toronto, you have the hot springs and the ski resorts. Mm -hmm. If you wanna get away from the city life, that's the place to go. Just an hour straight shot to the north and you'll be able to see the hot springs. And I recommend the summertime. Lake Ontario is gorgeous. And in a district called the beaches, it's a nice little area of shops. You'll be able to get the best scones that you've ever had. They have bakeries all across that area, but it's also the time that you can enjoy Lake Ontario.
3: I'm glad you brought up restaurants. Need to ask a favorite restaurants, but first Toronto, best poutine.
1: I don't enjoy the poutine. <laughs> but, but I like poo, I like Canadian poutine. I will stomach it, I will eat it, but if you tried it anywhere else, it doesn't work. It's something about the texture of the cheese. It has to be that crumbly curdy cheese that no one else seems to get it at all. If you try to get poutine in the States, they don't understand it. And it has to be like the best type of gravy. I don't know if When I was in Newfoundland doing my master's program, they had moose gravy. I will say the moose gravy was good, but we have moose all over the place.
3: (laughs) Moose gravy. This I must try one day. Yes, (laughs) sounds
1: delightful.
3: (laughs) All right. Favorite restaurant in St. Augustine?
1: The Drunken Horse on St. George Street. It's a French restaurant. If you love anything to do with France, wonderful. The cheeses are amazing. If you love the salamis, go for it. If you like beef stromboli yes go mm. and the de- and the dessert you can't go wrong with the chocolate cake or the creme brulee
3: where do you get the best fried gator
1: you're gonna love this one hurricane patties
3: no hurricane way <laughs> Patty's. Hurricane Patty's. Wow. Figures.
1: <laughs> just across the street from me yes it's just across the street from me no one's going to believe this there is a bar right on the lake called hurricane patties Best gator tail that you could ever imagine. And if you are a fan of fish and chips, they just know how to do the fish and chips. Just that nice crispy feeling. So right. Mm.
2: If you've got a website or uh, and social media where folks can learn more and follow along as maybe changes come down the pipeline in the future um, or, or get some more background beyond what this show discussed, how can they follow you and learn more?
1: I Operate weathergoddess.com, mostly a blog site where anything that's interesting, especially during hurricane season, I'm right on top of it, reporting every detail that I can about approaching hurricanes and what the season is holding for us. Another great method to follow me, Twitter. We're all addicted to it. So WX underscore goddess, constantly tweeting something that's happening in the tropics or just outside my backyard. Same with Facebook and Instagram weather goddess. Just follow the crazy redhead.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Masson for joining us tonight. It was a really fascinating discussion. Uh, looking forward to seeing what, what else you've got cooking down the road and uh, you know, keep us posted. Uh, so for on behalf of the rest of the panel here, I'm Jared Smith. Thank you for watching or listening to the Carolina Weather Group. Um, catch us anytime, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast or on YouTube, um, check us out, spread the word, like, subscribe.